0: Up next, the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop after this message. Now that doctors and patients have discovered the many benefits of hemp-derived CBD, Alpine Miracle's Nano Emulsion CBD Formula is one of the most bioavailable on the market today. It's 100% THC-free, so you can order it online anywhere in the U.S. Order yours today at alpinemiracle.com. Scientists are just beginning to understand its essential role in maintaining optimal health. Get yours today. Use the code REPORTER and receive 10% off. Don't wait. Get it now. At alpinemiracle.com. And now, broadcasting on Star Worldwide Networks, it's time for the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. Listen in as Snowden interviews cannabis industry pioneers, marijuana experts, policymakers, medical practitioners, patients, and other amazing individuals with compelling stories to share. It all happens right now. Here's the Cannabis Reporter, Snowden Bishop.
1: Evergreen is calling. Hi, and Evergreen welcome is back calling. to the Cannabis Reporter radio show. I'm your host, Snowden Bishop, and happy you could join us. If you know anything at all about cannabis, it's hard not to roll your eyes every time Attorney General Jeff Sessions threatens to enact his anti-marijuana agenda. While a growing number of lawmakers fight back with introducing new pro-cannabis legislation, that's proven to be an exercise in futility since cannabis bills rarely see an up-or-down vote. Why remains a mystery, although if I were to hazard a guess, I'd say that there are still too many elected officials that would rather capitulate to sessions reefer madness rhetoric than risk alienating their anti-marijuana campaign donors. The only other explanation would be ignorance. But whatever the reason it will take relentless pressure from the voting public to stop the madness. While a vast majority of Americans favor regulation, few feel really compelled to pick up the phone and urge their representatives to take action, there's really no sense of urgency unless they realize why U.S. drug policy has done more harm than good. That's why we decided over the last few weeks to cover the broad-reaching impact of the drug war On the domestic front, we delved into the sinister motives behind scheduling cannabis and barring sensible policy reform with the founder of Normal, Keith Strop. On the judicial side, we heard from Judge Gray about the overblown expense of prosecuting drug crimes and the injustice of harsh sentences for minor drug offenses. And on the global front, we spoke with Mexico's former president Vicente Fox about the disastrous diplomatic consequences of US drug policy and ways in which legalization could prevent the devastating loss of life caused by that military style enforcement. What we haven't delved into yet is the impact on the forgotten victims of the drug war. I'm talking about the people whose lives were destroyed because of unjust drug policy, whose families were ripped apart when they went to prison, And once they're released, they are the ones who carry the stigma of a felony conviction, which often interferes with their ability to find legitimate work and bars them from voting. That's the topic of today's show, and I'm really looking forward to introducing our guests. But before we get started, I'd like to introduce someone who's never been on the show before, but who is so much a part of it behind the scenes. I'd like to think of her as the backbone of our operation because she has the organizational talent and ability to bring us together with our amazing partners and sponsors. And furthermore, I wanted to acknowledge her contributions today, particularly because it happens to be her birthday. So I am really proud to introduce my business partner and dear friend, Star Simmons. Happy birthday and thank you
2: for being here. Thank you for having me, Snowden.
1: And. Uh, star is also responsible for introducing me to our guests today, Chris Martin and his wife, Andy. As I mentioned in the opening, the victims of the drug war that normally get zero sympathy in Congress if they're not completely disregarded in policy decisions, after launching a successful cannabis edibles company, under Arizona's medical marijuana law, Chris and his family were subjected to prosecution because of a technicality in the law. That's right, is it?
3: Yeah, it's uh, correct. We A technicality in the law and a co-defendant <laughs> who didn't follow the rules.
1: Yeah, well, I'll let you tell the story of what happened, but suffice it to say you've bounced back And you're now the owner of a very successful hemp operation called Hempful Farms, right? That's right. Yep. And you run it together with Andy. I do. Okay. So anyway, meet Chris Martin and Andy Martin. Thank you both for being here. I really appreciate it.
3: Thanks for having us.
1: Thank you. So I want to just jump right into this story because it broke my heart. And reading about it, it just seems as though you were just part of that machine that is that police industrial complex that we have that perpetrates unjust laws, especially regarding marijuana offenses. Tell me about what you were doing and why this happened to you.
3: Well, we'd have to go back a a little bit to really get to the beginning. Uh, I came out here to play baseball on a scholarship in 1995 at uh, Yavapai College. And three months after I came on full ride, I had a joint in my dorm room, and my room had been on a routine search list because my roommate liked to drink and party, and we got put on a list for being a little too loud. They came in, searched the room, and found a joint, and I did three years in prison for a possession of a dangerous drug charge in a drug-free school zone. Uh, The reason I went to prison on that charge is because I came from a, a rough childhood group homes and foster homes, so Instead of the judge realizing I was a one percenter to make it to that point at all, um, he decided to take my full ride scholarship. So what that did essentially 20 years down the road is uh, label me as a historical felon. So anything that I did after that as null and void uh, on the good side of the law, on the bad side of the law, it elevates all of my charges. So 21 years, no, no charges, own businesses, own football team, coach, a dad, a husband, lots of mm-hmm. positives, um, but that, that one negative. We, we started an edible company in 2009, pretty much. I was diagnosed with Crohn's in '07. We got our cards in 10, and we were growers. We were caregiver growers. And then um, with no dispensaries to get your medicine, nowhere to, to take your flower once you grow it, after we finished our, our crop of 25 plants, I mean, we, we were looking at, you know, 30-plus pounds of flour. Uh, we don't want to be black market drug dealers. We, we can't throw it in the trash. It's medicine. So we started our edible company. We felt like it was the best carrier to get it to the masses, whether it be children, elderly, the sick. And we had really good relationships with uh, uh, the organizations in town, Safer, and and uh, other groups that were helping us get our products to the patients. Um, and essentially, I think what happened was uh, a couple of things. Uh, it was a perfect storm. My business partner, um, we had an investor step in and saw that we had an amazing brand with an amazing product, we just didn't have any funding. So he came in with funding, bought us, got us a kitchen and got us established and told us what we thought to be the truth, that he was consigning our products to the dispensaries as they would open. So as my wife and I would do our weekly inventory and notice that our, our our inventory would drop, there's no revenue. We have no way to access our bank account with this partner. Um, they do, but we don't. And so immediately we have red flags everywhere. Going, wait, this is not correct. This is not. But it's going so fast. The growth is so quick because the patients can't access medicine. There, it's been three years and there's no dispensaries open still. So. There's lots of people sick and dying, and, and we have a lot of demand. And this person, this, this partner, saw the perfect storm and uh, was actually taking our product, selling it for cash, extorting us for the money. And then when he sold it to a cop on, undercover on camera, instead of him going to prison, he signs a deal with the state of Arizona. And my wife and I were brought under indictment. I was looking at 15 felonies, my wife was looking at 11 felonies, and everything ranging from endangering our children to uh, RICO-style felonies because I was in a motorcycle club. So they, it was just a perfect mess. It was We were trying to follow the, the ambiguous gray law that was put in place, and the people who were coming after us were supposed to be upholding that law, but were breaking it at the same time. So... Not only did we partner with a really crappy investor who turned in to be an uh, uh, informant um, and a thief, but we also had the police that were against us. The, the police that raided us were also in a motorcycle club, which we found out six months after our raid. One thing about us that people learn real quickly is we don't lay down for anyone. It doesn't matter how many times you raid us or arrest us or pick on us. We keep Fighting because this is right this is what's real this medicine is here to help people was put here way before any of us could write laws and decide what its purpose was so andy and i we just knew that the system we were fighting in wasn't our friend that there there was more to bring to the surface so instead of dropping the last seven thousand dollars that the cops didn't take during the raid on a lawyer which is usually tied in with the judges and the prosecutor anyway We dropped that money on a private investigator and that private investigator dug up so much dirt on the county and so much dirt on the police force that six months later, when one of my prospects was in a local bar in Prescott, which is, remind everyone, a no colors bar. You're not allowed to wear uh, uh, your garb into any of the bars in Prescott, which I've lived there 25 years and we respect those rules. We, We follow those rules. Uh, The police officers didn't. The Iron Brotherhood was throwing a Christmas party at uh, Moctezuma's. My prospect was there with his family, not in colors either, but my prospect recognized them. He said, you know, I I knew the chief of Prescott Police and the chief of Prescott Valley and the head of Pant. I know these guys, I see them, but they're wearing colors. They're in this bar as a gang now. And my guy, he's a prospect, he obviously wants to be in the club so it's a real easy decision for him to confront these guys just to show us like hey look i am serious i want to be in your club well instead of the guys you know having a conversation they jumped him. they they beat my guy up senseless on camera so the head of security at the bar knows me well we went to college together uh he called me he told me about the video that was available so we submitted it to my private investigator and the lawyer and lo and behold, three and a half years later, after fighting a life sentence, I was handed a two-year plea bargain by the state of Arizona.
1: It was a life sentence you were handed? A hundred
3: and twenty-seven years was my total max, is what I was looking at. Uh, with Crohn's, I mean, a five-year sentence could be a life sentence, but with hundred and twenty-seven years, that's most definitely a life sentence.
1: It's, it's astonishing how many people actually were given life sentences for street three strikes laws that... They Absolutely. had violated the third time having a small amount of narcotics in their pocket. But, you know, and for people who aren't from Arizona, I just want to remind our listeners that um, Prescott happens to be in a county called Yavapai County, which, if you follow cannabis at all, you've probably heard of the prosecutors mm-hmm. from Yavapai County. You've got Sheila Polk, you've got Bill Montgomery. These are probably the biggest cannabis foes on the face of the planet. I mean, they pull out all the stops. They're great at raising money. They have a platform at almost every media outlet, every mainstream media outlet here in Arizona to completely drill down on all of this reefer madness crap that you hear all the time that has no basis in truth. So you were a victim in a place that is known for its harsh rule about marijuana. So, I mean, how, how much were they involved in your case?
3: Well, we were f- really front lines in the war up there. Um, we were to be made the example of by Yavapai. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, not only did they have a biker, a, a club member patch-holding biker, but I'm the president. I was the president of the club. So, not to mention that my ex-wife of 20 years ago... Um, is the legal lead secretary for Sheila Polk. So when I say perfect storm, I couldn't design it any more perfect.
1: I'm sorry to laugh, but no, you know. So when
3: you ask me involvement, um, when I do, dil- do my due diligence and I study and I research and I pay the detective to do work, we also do that work. Um, 90 days after my raid, to the day, my ex-wife was awarded an award For her help on narcotic arrests now mind you she's a legal secretary she's a clerk she inputs info into a computer but somehow is now awarded this award which you can google and find her award from 2000 i think it was the beginning of the year of 13 for her help in this case so to me, the involvement came from every angle. I yeah. had my ex-wife who really just wanted to fight me for my child, which is just a personal issue we fought for 21 years now. Um, and she used her, her court backing, which once we got through the court system on the child support side and the child custody side, she was proven to have used her court backing and her information of the warrant before we were even raided. The warrant hit her desk She filed for emergency custody of our children and we we hadn't even been raided. So the court had actually deemed her involvement to be illegal that she had broken the law in using that warrant to try to take my child. Um, So it was just a mess from top to bottom and the involvement really was uh, all the way. I mean, the police that were involved were in a motorcycle club and allowed to beat up my guy but I go to jail a violent gang member. And while I'm in prison for two years, I can't see my wife for two years because I'm a a violent gang member. It's called STG, you're a security threat group. So now I can't get a job off the yard, I can't have visitation, I can't do any of the things that might make that little bit of time just that much easier. Um, You're stuck in a a warehouse. the difference with prison then and now which i like to tell people i have that luxury of the comparison because in the 90s our state was all about sending people home better you know you had uh, the the this this classes and reform things that you could go in there and really do and implement into your life as far as school and and, and jobs and getting certifications that'll carry over when you come home now it's a home depot without shelves they pile you in two by two bunk beds and an eight by three, not even a cell. I mean, honestly, if you offered me a two man eight by 10, I would have done backflips. I'm stuck in a room that's a thousand by 50 with six toilets, 500 people, no quiet or silence ever. And it's the most miserable. And granted, it's prison. You don't like it. Don't go. I get it. But if we're really a community of healing and bringing people home, then why in the world are we stuffing them in conditions like this and yeah. expecting them to go, you know what, you're going to be better off here than you were there with no support, none whatsoever.
1: Yeah, it's, something you said was really interesting when you compare the way that it was in the past to the way that it is now. The way it was in the past was the way it was intended to be because prison was not necessarily meant to be as punitive as it was meant to be... Well, it was meant to be rehabilitative, Absolutely. you know, so, so they wanted people to go and learn their lesson and come out and be able to function in society. And
3: so I was out 21 years. I, I learned from that way. Yeah. That way was right.
1: Right. I had
3: a key to my own room, but that was nice. I could go to my own room when you're forced with the issues in there. So you can focus, you can regroup, you can write, you can read. You don't have that now. Right. You can't even sit on the toilet and have that sign. See,
1: up. I am convinced that one of the reasons that marijuana is still a federally illegal drug is because of the money that is made by you know, the, the prison guard union, the private prison lobby. There are that many toilets in a room because it's more profitable to do it that Absolutely. way. Absolutely. And so then you're creating a cycle too because you're engendering this violence Absolutely. within. When people get out, they're angry. They're not rehabilitated. They've lost their you know, ability to get a legitimate job because they have a felony on their record. And, yes. and something I mentioned was and the voting. The, uh, the so prison
3: you, promotes that as yeah. well. When, when I, the first day off the bus, the first thing out of the lieutenant's mouth was who do you run with? Now me being the... The, the funny guy just trying to break the silence. Because I'm also a big intimidating guy. So a lot of people look at me like, oh wait, this guy's a bully or he's a gangster. And my thing is, you know, I love people. That's period, no matter where I'm at. So when the lieutenant looks at me and says, who do you run with? And I respond with, Nikes. I'm the only guy laughing. <laughs> Nobody else in the room laughed. But he came back with me and said, no, what race are you? And immediately that shows me where that hate is being passed down from. Now, granted, when you're in prison, it's a whole nother bureaucracy and you follow a whole nother set of rules out of necessity and and the need to survive. But, and I can tell you that older numbers and guys that have been down a lot longer kind of carry that around as habit, but it's not passed around by them. It comes from the top to keep control. The only way they know who's who of the yard is by keeping that segregation and promoting it I mean, you're not allowed to share food with another race, but if I have a needle and heroin, we can share all day. That's the unwritten rule in prison today. That is why I stood up and made a stand and said, you know what? I started a program called Coloring Books for Convicts to help people get sober, to help people get their head right, and to show that there's life after prison It doesn't define you. My wife was the first person to learn and understand that prison life is nothing but contract. From the minute you sign that plea bargain to the minute you walk in there and have to make a phone call, it's contract. The store that you purchase is contract. The visitation that you fill out under the application is submitted under contract. If people understood that that's how it's ran because prisons are now traded publicly they're they're listed as a real estate investment trust and they're traded publicly if people understood that that it's been going that way since 2013 i think there would be changes made and like you said in your intro you know there, there's so many people that don't want to change their stance because of finance or because of anger or, or wanting to look bad i am here to tell you first person first, first point i've done six years for this plant and that's just my time behind bars. That's not my prison time. It's not my pay or, or my court time or my probation or parole time. To overall have 19 years, half of my life wrapped up in the court system. If these men would ju- and women would just realize that they made a mistake and own it, no one's mad on this side. Right. We're not mad anymore. We're over being angry because we know we're right. All we want you to do is realize you're wrong and take a step. That's it. Yeah. Come this way without. The, the, there won't even be problems from us on this side. We'll even welcome you. Realize you made a mistake and just say, hey, you know what, we made that mistake and we're willing to That's something to we
1: were talking about. Well, with Judge Gray, we were talking about the hidden cost of the war on drugs, and that is exactly it. I mean, when they calculate how much it costs, they don't calculate how much it costs for the families. no and And then, it was very
3: expensive for us to be in prison, yeah, very expensive. I, I'm
1: sure because, okay, so Andy, you lost the revenue of the business. you lost your husband to contribute to your household. How on earth did you do this?
4: Well, I, I kept the business, we kept Hemphill farms, I closed the cafe, but i did we kept all the products going, e-commerce, so I took everything, I did what I had to do to get I rented kitchen space to make sure I could get the 500 dog treats that we got out that got ordered or um I just I did what I had to do really and yeah made our biggest thing at home we we were unable to see each other so we would make sure there was the money on the books for him to call we got only twice a we got one phone call a day for the first year and then they changed it to twice a day so and that alone I, I that alone, just the phone. He still has to eat in there. There's, they don't. He gets nothing. The clothes you have to pay for their clothes. They get two sets of clothes, but there's seven days in a week. So, I'm mean, thankfully, we could help. We were able to help him from home. And honestly, I, it made me think about those other guys in there. That, what they don't. If you don't have family, you don't have anything. Right. Nothing. You don't eat. You know, and. So, of course, you go in there, and what do you do? You'll hustle to get make ends meet, And like you said, then you get into... Even if you go in there not into drugs, you'll probably come out into it. Right. Which is sad.
1: Yeah, because there's so much, there's so much influence in there. And, and also, I mean, it's a matter of safety, too. You have to run with people, because otherwise you're subjected to... Um, I, I
3: took over a building. I ran a building. And that means, politically, I took command. Um, there's a gentleman who runs the yard and uh, they just do it their own way. In prison, the wheel moves the way it does and everyone understands it. Mm-hmm. And I'm not there to change the wheel. It's been running way before me and will continue on way after me. But in order for me to function, in order for me to be productive and, and be healthy in that environment, things have to go a certain way. They have to change. I can't sit and watch people slamming dope every day sharing needles, left and right, but can't eat together. Or there'll yep. be a race war. I've never understood this madness, so I had two options. Be quiet, sit back and do your time, and just go home and watch these 1920 somethings get strung out with six months left, or make a change. And the deciding factor for me was, actually, she talked about our phone calls. They turned my phones on under my son's name and didn't tell us that. So a year into being able to talk, I got moved to a new prison in Kingman. I got moved there because I wrote a curriculum for the Winslow prison for a class called Thinking for a Change. When I walked into the class, I felt like they were being very uh, condescending, you know, thinking for a change. You're applying that we're all idiots, that none of us think. So I took the marker out, I crossed the A out, and handed her the marker, the instructor, the pen back, and sat down and she's looking at me like, are you crazy? Why, why did you do that? I said, "Well, because you imply we're idiots. Did, did you stop to think that some of us got brought here kicking and screaming? You know, we didn't knock on a door and rent the room. A lot of us uh, read that, that sign and that, that title and imply that we've never thought before or that... Or that this is the ground zero. And for me, I, I've got a lot of work into this life. And I've done a lot here. And I feel like you're, you're dogging me out because I went to prison. Some of us didn't do anything to get here. Mm-hmm. And I know that's hard for you to buy because you're on that side. But don't have that wine after dinner and drive home because you run that same risk and landed next to us. Right. And as soon as I hit her with that, she was just like, oh, my goodness. So I was reading a book at the time. I used the book to help write a curriculum. I submitted the curriculum and out of nowhere, Once we submitted it to the ADW, I had been moved. They moved me to a new prison. The new prison, I called her to tell her this is where I'm at, and immediately I was put on report. They gave me a ticket, which said I had broken a rule. So when I went to see the captain and asked, what did I do? Why why did I get put on report? He said, well, you illegally used the phone to call your wife. I'm like, sir, I'm five months from the gate. I'm just trying to get home. I've used the phone every prison I've been on just the same way, three o'clock in the afternoon. And he said, well, your phone's on in your son's name. So when your wife wrote you and told you how good it was to hear your voice, we read that. After we read that, we went and looked at your phone list. Once we saw she wasn't on your phone list because she wasn't approved for visits, we decided to put you on report. So that seems like an awful lot of effort to go through considering the charge. He said, you're a gang member, sir. And right then, it just hit me, like, that's their way to tag you, just like they do the child molesters or the sex offenders or all these other, you know, like if I pee outside after a bar fight or a drink, now I'm a sex offender if a cop sees that. So now I can be tagged that because it's going to cost them $60,000 a year to house me instead of 30000 The same thing they do with the gang members. So now I'm a gang member. I can't leave. They need more security to watch me. That means I'm required to go to a level three yard. It's part of the system. It's part of the game. So as I'm leaving, after I got my ticket, I'm just, everything's clicking. I'm realizing this is just a business. This is all bureaucratic business. It's, it has nothing to do with me going home with better men. They would rather me come back. Recidivism is the key. So one of my youngster kids is walking out. He had a ticket, his fourth one, for a dirty UA. So I was very curious. Like, I, I get in trouble for talking to my wife and get 10 hours manual labor, What's this kid get for four dirty UAs in a month? I'm just curious. He didn't get anything. The captain told him that he should tell his drug dealer to send in the lower quality dope so that way maybe he'll pass the next drug test. Right then it hit me. They could care less about who gets clean, who goes home better. They want you high. They see the $5 papers of heroin that are worth 30 bucks on the street in everyone's possession. They see it. I watch them raid people and laugh about basketball-sized balls of heroin that they're taking off people's possessions. How'd it get there? How did it get there? Mm -hmm. I didn't bring it. We didn't bring it. We know how it got there. Pops are bringing it in. Anybody that can make an extra buck because they're getting paid 15 bucks to do whatever. You know what I mean? It's a broken system, and if we're, we're fools if we think that convicting people for breaking the law and sending them there is a good thing. And the only reason I made it out is because I got a 20-year wife. I got five, year, five kids from that 20-year marriage, and they're my life. There's so much more to life than sitting in there with drugs and whatever they're doing. I just knew that I had to be part of the solutions I wanted to see, that's what we've done.
2: See,
1: this is why I was so um, eager to speak with you and when Star told me that she had met you all of the things that you're talking about right now really are what would create a sense of urgency for someone to actually pick up the phone, call their representative Today. and and make you know urge them to change this because we're not doing society any favors, number one, for locking people up for a plant. And, you know, number two, we're not doing people any favors by creating an atmosphere of anger within the prison system so that when they get out, they're even more angry than they were when they became incarcerated. And I don't know. I mean, Starr, tell me when you first talk to Chris. You already told me this, but just share it with us. Like, what your first thoughts were and why, why you felt it was so important to tell his story.
2: You know, one of the things I think was amazing, um, first of all, Chris and Hemphill stepped in to be a sponsor of the Veterans Parade that we did downtown, which was so important, because why were we there? We were there to march against the VA, who, as you know, we lost another veteran uh, at their facility. And we spent 45 minutes on the phone talking, and he just told me his whole story. And I thought, this is amazing. First of all, the openness and how can I give back, which is what I was so drawn to. Because in this community, it is great. It has people such as yourselves, but there's also what we have experienced is quite a bit of drama. (laughs) We experienced it during that parade. But... I, I thought to myself, Snowden has to interview you to get the story out, because it's incredible.
4: Thank
1: you. Yeah, and, and ordinarily on this show, we talk a lot about medical, we talk a lot about policy, mm-hmm. we talk a lot about you know, just some of the general injustice in an overarching way. This really is the first time we've heard from the other side of the equation, which is the victim. You know, what is it that people have to go through for a plant that holding it in your pocket or using it yourself is not doing anybody any harm, and you know, as, unless you get behind a, the wheel of a car and drive completely inebriated. But you know, same goes with alcohol. But it's far safer than alcohol.
3: It's bureaucratic it, driven. It
1: is bureaucratic, but mm-hmm. but what I guess what I'm getting at is I really am hoping that hearing stories like this and hearing the injustice. Really sparks someone to take action because really nothing is going to happen every single cannabis measure that's been introduced in either uh, Congress or in the Senate they've all been ushered off to committee not a single one has been voted on with the exception of maybe including it in the farm bill mm-hmm. you know with hemp or um, and and there are a couple that really do have a good shot at passing but Every single time you hear something from the administration that they're going to double down on this or double down on that, you see a handful of people rush to the rescue with a bill that's going to stop him in his tracks. But nothing happens after that. And so, you know, if you had a message for people who were either going through what you went through with this or to implore them to, you know, take action, what would you say? What would be your number one advice
3: well, first things, NDA, NDA, NDA.
1: <laughs> know who
3: you're shaking hands with. You know, I'm, right. I'm a handshake guy. I'm, I'm a Kansas boy. I grew up in the Midwest. You know, you wear it on your sleeve and you shake a hand. And that does not work in this community, this industry. It just doesn't work in this life anymore. Um, right. Those days are gone. And it's sad to be admitting it and saying it out loud, but it's real. Um, and on the other side of it, it's, it's really about our message is prison doesn't define you. You know, I want people to understand, I come from group homes. I, I left home at nine. I didn't go to college until you know 19 years old, and I was in a group home the entire time, 40 of them. From there, three months later, I'm in prison for a joint. You know, 21 years later, I'm in prison again. Prison does not have to define you. And I know when you get in there, because a lot of people are looking at time right now. I, I'm a member of POW 420. We fight to get people exonerated. We fight to get sentences overturned. Um, but my biggest thing is to, to keep your head up that there's a team back here fighting. There, there are people that won't quit until this is right. Mm-hmm. Until, and, and for the lawmakers, please quit writing laws without decrim in it. Just period. We wouldn't be here if there wasn't a crappy, ambiguous law put on the books that said, yeah, you can have this, but if you have this little tiny bit more, it's a prison sentence. I'm just sick of it. De- I, decrim needs to be part of this topic. Plant count's great. Concentrate talk is great. All that stuff's fine and dandy. But if you can go to prison for any of it, what does it matter? You know, I'm a Crohn's patient. I'm never going to stop using my medicine. But I just want to stop looking over my shoulder. I just want to stop worrying. Like, you know, I juice everything. So if I have over my two and a half ounces, then I'm going to go to jail. That's crazy for a plant that's never killed a person ever. Right. It's, It's just crazy to me.
1: Yeah, it is. It is. And um, Andy, when you were going through all of this, you actually did have quite a bit of support from the cannabis community, but from others. Tell me a little bit about that.
4: Well, while I was home, um, we did... My, my son and I, we, we were on a show, the marijuana show. So uh, it kind of helped us with the business a little bit. And it, we did get some a lot of support from people. Um, t- standing behind us, making sure we were okay while Chris was gone, um, I, I wanted to add on to... When you were talking about the victims um that chris and i were we're not the only victims obviously Um, Mm -hmm. we're very open victims but with that being said we were not open so for the first year and a half after our raid we were told to be quiet not to talk about it just follow the rules that they gave us well they also put us in that position they being the police officers the attorneys the judges so to everybody, there's a lot of victims out there that just need to be more open and need to ask for help, need to shout out there that we didn't do anything wrong to begin with, but we are being treated like awful criminals and being placed in prisons with somebody who actually did hurt another person, and that's not okay. So these victims need to start standing up and be vocal, even when you're told not to. We were told not to, but after a year of being told not to, we had no support. And had we continued that way, he still would have gone to prison and I would have had absolutely nothing. So we did get the support because we were vocal and all those people that stood behind. Some people decided to not stand behind us. They decided they didn't like us anymore. And that just made us stronger. It made Mm -hmm. it, it, you know, him going away made us stronger as a family, our business stronger. and the support I, I, I have lots of people I can say supported me. I have a lot of people that I can say fell away. Chris went away and they went away. Mm-hmm. And that happens, that's, that's, happens all too often and it's okay.
1: Well, there's enough of a stigma for people who don't understand cannabis to make people look upon that business as something that is somewhat shameful and then you couple that with prison, which has an even larger stigma then, you know, that makes sense that they would fall away.
4: You know, and our our youngest actually is homeschooled. And with that stigma, with that being said, uh, he wanted to go back to normal school. So while Chris was gone, I, I signed him up, allowed him to go. And because of Chris being in prison and because of our background in the industry, our son was nervous to go back to school after being homeschooled. So he acted different. He wanted to call me throughout the day because he was afraid his dad was gone. What if they take my mom? So just little things that he had to try to work out himself. Well, with that stigma, they wanted to now send in counselors. And are you sure everything's okay? Because he said that they were gonna make bigger problems basically because we are these bad people And my husband's in prison, so there must be something wrong with this little boy who wants to call his mom in the middle of the day. So therefore, I had to then pull my son back out of normal school, public school, because they were putting this stigma of us being these awful people because of what we did. And what did we do?
3: They called CPS on us. We sat down with the school to have a game plan with them and explain, look, we'd been raided. That was Christopher's that. got some behavior issues, and we want to have a talk. We want to make a plan and, and, and be positive. And we have five children. We've got kids in college. I mean, we, it's not he our first the, rodeo.
4: He's the youngest. Mm-hmm.
3: So uh, it felt like we were doing the right thing as parents, and when we left the meeting, CPS was at our house. They, like, we didn't just have CPS through our house during the raid i mean you know they were already called well, what, what okay. was the
1: justification for cps being there totally what did they not say sure.
3: i don't know once the it was a 20 something little hispanic lady she walks in she looks around like uh mind the right place i mean we have a, a nice home and, and a big family she interviewed us all and then apologized like i'm sorry and at that point with all the stress from the case and and lawyers and courts and then my son i went to the school and i lost it i walked in and he just so happened to be getting locked into a closet like a little room they put him in because he had to eat by himself and he couldn't you know he couldn't interact with other people and i lost i said you people shouldn't be around children i mean i just i understand that he's different and i understand that he's going to learn different but if you're not capable admit it don't blame him don't tell me i can't bring him out without him being medicated who are you you're a teacher not a doctor i mean I don't know. It's, just a, it's, a, it's, it's a, really
1: a shame. It's and, and a lot of children go through that, too. They lose mm-hmm. their, their parents, too.
3: And that's the silent part of this war that right. many people Yeah, lose that's exactly why I of. wanted
1: to bring you in, because it's so side, important.
3: I want people to also, if you question what's going on in your court proceedings, question it. Yeah. Get a second opinion. It's only your life you're dealing with. Right. My court case was orchestrated. If you go to the Arizona Corporate Commission right now and go look at Zonka Gear, that's my LLC for my edible company and my clothing line. I own Zonka Bars and I own Zonka Gear. It shows they were established in 2010 and 2013. It shows it online. Well, now all of a sudden there's a third LLC called Zonka Meds. While I was being tried in court and I was given this plea bargain, This third LLC was formed, and I was notified by my brother. He said, hey, look at the site. Did you start something else? It just so happens it's my two co-defendants and their defense attorney. So not only did I get set up to take this plea, but they were trying to steal my brand. They tried to recreate my edibles while I'm fighting for my life in court, and now I'm having to civilly sue this lawyer and these two co-defendants because they tried to recreate all my stuff and steal it. I wrote the judge, I wrote the bar, I wrote everyone from prison and they talked to me like I'm an idiot. Like, well, unless your judge rules that he did something illegal, we can't do anything about it. Well, why would the judge rule on something when an attorney is not the one on trial? Yeah. He's not on trial. He's the guy stealing my brand. So if you question something in your proceedings, because we're not lawyers and they, gain, they bank on that, they bank on us not understanding rule of law or not having a doctorate or, you know, they, 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 they. they I mean, my wife should not have been charged with anything that her own lawyer told the judge to charge her after he didn't want to accept her plea because the, the, her attorney was an ex-prosecutor of 20 plus years and understands the system. Plea bargains was bring in revenue. Was he just for doing that? Uh, he oh. should have been. He, not but, in our case. But Nothing because either. we're no. felons, we can't come back swinging. People look at us and, oh, well, whatever, whatever you say, son. No, these are real instances that you can go read about. If if you go to the corporate commissions, it's proof. How does my two co-defendants and their attorney become the new LLC members and owners? I'm just curious. And who do I talk to to get that fixed? All I get told is hire a lawyer. Yeah, that's what I want to do. (laughs) Drop (laughs) some money on another lawyer.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and and just by nature of being the defendant and being the felon. Stigma ridden. It's stigma ridden Mm -hmm. and there's no sympathy for it. No, so
3: we decided we're just going to grow our brand absolutely as big as possible. We're going to fight their game. I'll hire lobbyists and we'll go do the same thing they do and dump a bunch of money at pointless crap and... I mean, if, that, if that's how we have to win, then that's how we'll have to win. I mean, if Arpaio can run for state, hey, I, I heard the mayor, I, we're looking for a new mayor, right? I'll try shit. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> that's like a little beep. It,
3: <laughs> it's just funny. I saw he could run for state rep after indictment, conviction. Senator. And, yeah, he's running mm, for state senate. Yeah. That's awesome. That's, wow. That's
1: awesome. Uh, interesting. <laughs> just
3: interesting. <laughs>
1: Um, I will lose faith in government if he gets anywhere with that. But Mm -hmm. anyway, I digress. (laughs) That's a whole other show. That's a whole other show. Mm -hmm. Although apparently he at one point was pro-cannabis. But I don't think that's the case anymore. I don't know. I
3: heard the same thing about Ducey. And then he vetoed Senate Bill 1337 with 32 backers. You're in the
1: hemp business. Yes, ma'am. were, you, were your eyes rolling when he vetoed that? It's the first time in. My,
3: my eyes were rolling and my fingers were Google searching because then I wanted to know his involvement in Vanguard and the.
1: Incis and. And the and prison and
3: system. And, and I wanted to know why. I mean, there's only a few reasons of why anyone would shoot that bill down. When you have farmers failing, you have a state that three quarters of it could grow hemp four times a year. And you could produce 50,000 products that this state produces by itself under roof exactly
1: well not to mention the fact that it was the first time in i don't know how long that the entire assembly came together and agreed and agreed on something like 98 percent. yes that never happens in the state of arizona it's completely divided along party lines this was the one thing that everybody could come together and it got vetoed
3: showed me a it financial just, veto that to me that's a there's a financial burden there because of the relationship with other corporations. I mean, Apple got brought in here for what, I I believe they brought in, what, a couple hundred jobs over the next 10 years? Yeah. To me, that's not driving your economy. No. To me, that sounds like it's a stock market move, just saying. And, you know, I'm just a dumb guy who didn't graduate high school and went to prison twice. But if you read the numbers and if you research the money, follow the money, I mean, he was part of Coldstone Creamery, and the debacle that happened with Coldstone So, you know, history repeats itself because nobody listens the first time. That's, yeah. that's how I see it.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. We've got a lot of work cut out for us as an industry, I think, to overcome the stigma, to overcome the injustice in the law and all of that. But my biggest plea to anybody who's listening to this show or any, anyone who's interested in the cannabis movement at all. I really urge you to pick up the phone and call your representative and tell your representative that you want them to pass some meaningful legislation to take the injustice out of the equation, because hearing your story and there are 2.2 million of you who've gone through this thing and as many or more family members who have been impacted and their children who've been traumatized by this, who now live in fear and people who can't legitimize. I mean, you're you're an anomaly, I think, because a lot of people come out angry. They have trouble assimilating, trouble finding a job that you know, will take someone who has a felony record. And you've made something really successful, but what about the people who don't have the knowledge or the wherewithal or the stamina to fight that hard to create a successful business and work around the system?
3: I, I think know. that's where we need to vote out these people that are in office. Yeah. That's where those changes will take place because people like Polk who run unopposed how many times and no one runs against this woman? I mean, that's where the changes need to be made, but. It's just this vicious cycle, because if you catch a felony, then you lose your right to vote. Right. That's the first thing they take.
1: Well, and in fact, by his own admission, President Nixon, that, right. that was the reason that, one of the many reasons that, that he and his administration, you know, unilaterally decided to put cannabis in with heroin and LSD in the schedule of controlled substances because of that very reason why take away the left-leaning mm-hmm. you know anti-war protesters who were the ones who were also advocating for you know free the leaf <laughs> yep. and yeah and it and stifles them. yeah mm-hmm. if anybody's interested in hearing that entire backstory listen to uh keith Strop interview last week i mean it, we went into this whole thing oh, wow. because he started normal the same year that the Controlled Substances Act was signed into law. Oh, wow. And so he was there as part of that entire... Front line. Yeah, the entire front line. But when you go back and and read the transcripts of the Nixon tapes and you read the conversations between, you know, his chief of staff and, and the people in the White House, you can see, you know. And one conversation was, yeah, did we know that there was no harm in marijuana? Sure, we knew that but the people that were voting against us were the people who happened to smoke it. And before that, it was a racial issue. It was either you know, the black musicians or the migrant farm workers. And so it's always had this sort of racial underpinning. And, you know, and then with the stigma and the sort of Puritan society that we have, you know, with people like, oh, I don't want to touch anything that's perceived to be bad.
3: My mom was a hippie. Like, she made butter. She made salves. If you burned yourself here, rub mom's salve on you. I didn't know it was bad. I only knew that it was bad in the Bible Belt state I was from. So I mean, when I had an offer to play baseball here, I ran. I was like, yeah, West Coast. Anything closer to the Emerald Triangle or people who understand, and I go to prison. I'm here three months and I go to prison. It's like, whoa, that's a change of plans. Just, I didn't see that coming out here. I didn't, I didn't realize that it uh, would cause that much trouble. Considering where I came from.
1: Yeah. Well, I think people coming of age today are going to have a much different point of view of it. And I think that, you know, as some of the younger generations start filling posts in Congress and taking public service jobs and becoming police officers and, you know, working in the judicial system and everything else, I think you're going to start seeing a much more relaxed attitude toward it. But you're right. I think we need to get new fresh faces in Congress, for sure. Absolutely. So, I don't know, Star,
2: anything to add? Well, you know, as Jeff Sessions would say, good people don't smoke weed. (laughs) 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 And that's the first start, the one we need to get rid of right there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what? If If you can't
1: teach him, replace him, right? So... We have a lot of work to do because um, at the very least it, it seems as though unless something dramatic happens through the investigations that are happening or whatever, we're kind of stuck with him for a few more years. I know that there were a few people in Congress who were trying to get an audience with him to kind of explain why it's ridiculous to oppose hemp. Okay, sure, if he thinks that getting high is like evil, then okay, that's your opinion, that's fine, we can live with that, but why hemp, you know, unless we're really following the money? And I would love to be a fly on the wall in those talks, because how can you dispute science? How can someone defend a law or a policy that was founded on an egregious lie? How can they? And when you explain it to them in a room, and you assume that if they got a law degree they must be you know they must have something upstairs watch their faces when they're you know when you explain that i don't know it's it's, it's true. interesting so true. chris any last thoughts
3: no i just appreciate you having us on and uh, you know we we've traveled from california to pennsylvania to do stuff like this and we just appreciate the opportunity to get the story out there because like my wife said in the beginning we were always so quiet we are always so reserved about being able to share because we didn't trust anyone for one after what happened. But two, we didn't know who was on our side. It's like, wait, you tell your story and then everyone wants to blast you. Um, but we felt like now five years in that this is the only way. This is the only yeah. way things change. And I couldn't tell you how many people email us or show up at the store and just say, hey, I heard you on the radio or I saw your article in the paper or the magazine and I read it. And they want to come just shake your hand and and maybe a little bit of support or... They just want to know who you are, or just to let you know. Like, look, we, we, we said a prayer for you. We thought about you. And, you know, little things like that, you, you don't realize how important they are until you're the guy behind bars. Right. And you get that letter in the mail that you don't normally expect, or, you know, that, that random person that reaches out to give you that help. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's an honor for us to be able to share our story on, on avenues and platforms like this. So we appreciate what you guys
1: do. Well, certainly welcome. Thank you. And and thank you. Thank you. Too. So and thank you, Star, for being here and thank Happy
3: you. Happy birthday. For
1: doing all you do <laughs> for the cannabis reporter. She's actually the publisher extraordinaire. Thank you, Star. She's the glue of our organization and we couldn't do it without her. But anyway, so thank you. Yeah, and I, I really hope that people are as touched by your story as, as we were. And with any luck, we'll inspire people to get out there and make some phone calls to their congressional representatives, but anyway, it's time to bring this show to a close. It always goes by way too quickly, but I would like to personally thank my guests, Star Simmons, Chris Martin, and Andy Martin, for sharing their insights and incredible knowledge with us today. If you'd like to learn more about Hempful Farms or the work that they are doing, Please visit us online at thecannabisreporter.com. Click podcast to find today's episode and I will be sure to post their bios along with information and a link to their website. We have a lot of people to thank. First, I'd like to express our sincere gratitude for our radio sponsors, Alpine Miracle, Health Terra and Compassionate Certification Centers. We certainly couldn't do this without you. I'd also like to thank Dr. Brian Donner for our Medical Marijuana Minute update, Eric Godal, the composer of our theme song Evergreen, our producer Ed and engineer Craig and the team here at Star Worldwide Networks for making us shine every single week. And last but not least, thanks to all of you for listening around the nation. I'm your host, Snowden Bishop, inviting you to join me again next week, same time, same place, for another episode of the Cannabis Reporter radio show. Please pick up the phone, call your congressional representatives, and let them know that you want justice when it comes to cannabis regulation. And until we meet again, be safe, stay informed, share what you've learned, and make it a great day.